Good morning. Today is Thursday, September 29th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, the program where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. What a great day to gather around God's Word, so thank you for listening. Whether over the air, online, through an app, or as a podcast, no matter how you tune in, I'm glad you're here. Settle in, open your hearts and your minds. We're about to begin. Thy Strong Word is underwritten by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. LHF translates, publishes, and distributes books that are Bible-based and Christ-centered and Reformation-driven. So when you get a moment, next time you're online, visit lhfmissions.org. And while you're online, why don't you drop me an email, say hello, maybe ask a question or have a comment about today's show. You can send that to pastorboo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. Every Friday, I begin the show by pulling from the old listener email bag, so be sure to tune in for that. Well, today we arrive back in Corinth, just in time to hear the Apostle Paul commend the Corinthian Christians for maintaining the traditions that he passed down to them. It's true that his letter has said much in the way of admonishment and correction, but St. Paul loves these Christians as a father in the faith, and so he's eager to commend them when he can. But with this accolade, St. Paul now begins to address some more concerns. And in this part of his letter, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 through 16, he reinforces the godly principle of headship of husband to wife, which is a testimony to our relationship with God. And he speaks of covering and of covering heads, a, a cultural thing, but a subject that we should know a little bit more about. But we're going to need some more cultural background to fully understand and apply this today. So joining the conversation is my guest, the Reverend Larry Bean, pastor of Salem Lutheran Church in Gretna, Louisiana teacher and chaplain at Wittenberg Academy. Pastor Bean, welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Well, thank you, Pastor Boo. It's a real privilege and an honor to be back. Yeah, we. this is an exciting text for today because it's one that I believe is dismissed as just irrelevant for today. I mean, not that God's Word is irrelevant, but I just feel like pastors, if they saw this this was the option to preach on versus something else. They're probably going to skip over this one, but it has so much to say about our relationship with one another and our relationship with God. And far from being irrelevant, I think it actually has some things to say about some of the cultural uh, battles that are being fought out there right now. Absolutely. Um, again, you know, the, the big issue that we're struggling with culturally right now at this time is the relationship between men and women. Um, you know, can we even define what a woman is, right. uh, is, is a big question, but, uh, not only, uh, the idea of, of masculine and feminine, but how we relate to one another. And is this all just sort of theoretical or does it have application in, in our real lives and especially in the divine service? So this, this, uh, this particular passage touches on a lot of really, really hot button issues. Um, but these are things that, uh, that have been revealed to us in God's holy word, and we do well to read and, and heed what, uh, what is the Holy Spirit has for us. Excellent. Well, I'm glad to have you by my side as we dig into this. But before we, before we do, would you mind beginning our time together in prayer? Sure. Let us pray. 
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Lord Jesus Christ, you are the head of the church. We give you thanks and praise for all of the blessings you bestow upon us, chiefly your death on the cross for our sins, and your resurrection, and the promise of our own resurrection. We give you thanks, O Lord, as the church, as your bride, and we give your Father praise and glory as well for revealing to us his holy word and revealing to us that we, the church, is his bride as well in both Old and New Testaments. We pray that we would be submissive to the holy word and that we would submit to whatever vocations to which we are called in this earthly life as well. And we pray in your most holy name, for you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Our text for today is 1 Corinthians 11, 1 through 16. And I'm just going to read the whole thing, get it all out there so that we can talk about it. Beginning with verse 1, and then I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. All right, this is a pretty, pretty sticky text if and only if you read it through the hermeneutic of suspicion that is so pervasive in our culture today. Before the 1960s, it really wouldn't have been that big of an issue. I mean, there certainly were people who questioned uh, how to apply this in today's world, but any talk of headship, any sort of language that might suggest that men and women have different roles and vocations, that we even have a different uh, um, gifts from God to be used for the benefit of one another. Any sort of difference between men and women is so shunned today, uh, husbands and wives included. So as we dig in, let, let us begin, though, brother, by acknowledging, as I said in the opening, that he commends them, and he commends them for something that I think is also seen and looked down upon, and that is maintaining the traditions. 
What do, what do you think, brother? Well, yeah, I think uh, tradition can have has sort of a, a spotty reputation among us, um, and uh, he he does he does mention maintaining the traditions, uh, the paradoses in in Greek, and what it literally means are the handed over things. Um, tradition is something that comes from the past. You receive it and then you pass it along, kind of like a runner with a baton in a relay. And, uh, and so, um, St. Paul mentions that he, that he mentions maintaining the traditions and he mentions delivering them, delivering those traditions. It's a different word in English, but it's the same word in Greek. It's just a different grammatical form. You have paradoses and uh, paradoka. So it's the same word. I mean, you could almost say like we tradition something by handing it over. And so um, it, it is interesting because some people will badmouth tradition. Uh, for instance, I mean, you know, there, there are different concepts of tradition or different um, contexts really is a better word. Like for instance, in, in Mark 7, um, especially in verse 9, Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees and he says, this is, this is Jesus at his satirical finest. He says, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. So in that context, tradition is very bad because it's replacing God's word and it's being treated like God's word. Um, and in, in Colossians 2.8, you have St. Paul saying, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. So tradition can be the enemy of the word of God and the gospel. Um, but here you see Paul saying that we should maintain the traditions, and especially to the Corinthians. And, he, and, and again, in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, St. Paul says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So St. Paul is including his preaching to them as something that he is, as tradition. In other words, he's not preaching to, you, to them his own opinions. He's preaching to them what he received. And then the scripture, you know, whether by spoken word or by our letter, you know, that I, it seems like he's referring to the first letter to the Thessalonians, that epistle, um, that this is, uh, this is a tradition. It's a handed over. I mean, a letter is literally handed over from the person who writes it to a messenger, to, from the messenger to the person receiving it. So tradition is not a bad word among us. Um, traditions are very good things, but they have to be um, underneath the scriptures. They have to be within the scriptures. They have to be in the service of the gospel, uh, because tradition can certainly be abused. It can be something that um, can contradict the scriptures or contradict the word of God or the gospel. And, and that was the big issue with traditions in the Reformation. And uh, it's a principle throughout our book of Concord that traditions are, are good and noble and we keep them unless they contradict scripture, um, unless they are, uh, unless someone is claiming that holding to these traditions somehow justifies you, like a works righteousness thing. In a case like that, we may need to um, uh, modify or even ignore such traditions. But tradition on the whole is actually a very good thing. If we look at traditions and we understand that the purpose of tradition, whether good or bad, is to pass something down, deliver something, or maybe even teach something, right? Traditions teach us. It teaches us about how we should uh, practice our faith, what we should believe, and these things are passed down. 
So although the terms are not interchangeable, if you were to say teachings every time you see traditions, I think it helps you understand that just as there can be bad and good teachings, there are bad and good traditions. And as you so aptly pointed out, the bad ones are those who are not founded upon, at least in the church, founded upon the word of God, but rather founded upon men's own desire, traditions of men, as Jesus said. So in this next section, when he's talking about uh, the head of uh, every man is Christ and the head of wife is her husband, et cetera, and he gets into the head coverings, and et cetera, these things, are these the traditions that they're keeping that he's commending them for? Or does he just throw in one verse of com, you know, commendation and then goes right back to being corrective in his letter? Because yeah. if you read, if you read verse three as, and I want you to understand, it's almost like he's reaffirming what they have been maintaining. Maybe this isn't a big problem, or maybe it is. I don't know. I know we'll get into it, but you know, it just seems odd to me that there's one verse of, I just want to let you know, I'm really happy about the fact that you're maintaining the traditions and the teachings that I delivered to you. Anyway, here's all the things you're doing wrong again. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, I think it's a little bit of a backhanded compliment. It may be a little bit of a, um, you know, softening the blow for the criticism. I mean, he's he's been pretty harsh with them <laughs> throughout mm -hmm. most of the book. Um, so that word, but, you know, uh, we translate the the, the 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 Greek word there as but. So sometimes when you have the word but, you know that what follows is going to be uh, a little change in direction. So he says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of wife is her husband and so forth. So it's like they, they're good at maintaining some traditions apparently, but um, in, in, in chapter 11, he's, he's talking about uh, men and women, and he's specifically talking about a practice in the divine service of of covering the head for the women, and and in, and at the end of the uh, of this particular chapter, he gets into the tradition of the Lord's Supper, meaning it was handed over to him. He's handing it over to uh, the Corinthian church. The words of institution are there, and also the customs, the rubrics, if you will, of the divine service and what they should be doing with the elements of what they should not be doing. So the, the, we're, we're kind of getting into the tradition of worship here, um, which, which it is, um, we, we worship as we believe, you know, lex orandi, lex credendi is the old saying, uh, uh, the law of prayer is the law of belief. The way that you believe is played out in the way you worship. The way you worship is played out in the way you believe. And I think that's where he's headed with the, with the head coverings, uh, because we are in relationship to Christ as the church, as our head, and we are in relationship to one another as men and women as we attend divine service you know, in the flesh, in our bodies. And I think that's kind of where he's making that transition. I think this is one of the traditions... Uh, the tradition of worship that they're not doing such a good job of, and he has to go back into corrective mode here. Well, how do you want to tackle this then? Do you want to talk about the actual uh, practices of head coverings and the context behind it and then get into what he means by headship, or do you want to just do it verse by verse? I'm going to leave that up to you. Okay, I, I'd rather just go verse by verse. I think um, I, I think I'll, I'll interweave it in there. Um, you know, I've been giving this a lot of thought, and uh, um, I recently heard a, a, a podcast, if people are interested, uh, the Gottesdienst crowd, 
Pastor Jason Broughton had an interview with a pastor, uh, John Koopman, whom I've not met, but uh, I thoroughly enjoyed his uh, interview on the topic of head coverings. So um, that's another possibility to go and listen to. And and also I would point out, um, we just had the, um, not long ago, we had the Queen's funeral. And I think it was Fox News had um, a kind of a, a feature on how, uh, even in this day and age, among the visitors or the, um, the people who were attending the funeral, including various heads of state and whatnot, um, that the women, especially in the royal family, uh, were wearing veils and, and how this is actually an ancient custom in the church, uh, even with 1 Corinthians 11 coming up in the discussion. So uh, this is something I have been giving some thought to, and, uh, and I think you're right. I mean, I think out, out of the gate in verse 3, he gets into the idea of headship. I do want to be a little critical of the ESV translation here, though. I, I give high marks to the ESV. I use it. But... Um, the, the word here and the King James Version translated, instead of husband and wife, it's translated as man and woman. And those are the literal words that are used in Greek. Um, you can translate them as husband and wife. Uh, that's, not a, th- that's not wrong. It just depends on the context. But when you get to um, verse 5, you see it, it says every man, or four, verse 4 is every man, and verse 5 is it, here it says every wife. I mean, they're, they're kind of hedging their bets on this. Um, but the word every means it's universal. It's not only husbands mm-hmm. and wives, although we certainly have that headship within the family. But I think it goes deeper. It goes, it, it goes to the core of who we are as men and women. And so I would be a little critical about sort of limiting this to husbands and wives, uh, although that's certainly a part of it. Well, one of the notes, so the word, the Greek word there is gune, and one of the notes, at least from the ESV, on why in verse 5 it translates that particular gune as wife as opposed to woman is because of the context of dealing with veils. I think that the editor's argument is going to be that the veil is a sign of being married, and therefore anything to do with a veil would only apply to a married woman. I don't necessarily agree with that argument. Yeah, that's really an argument from silence. It's an argument from a lot of cultural assumptions. Um, I don't have the citation, but I know that I think it was Tertullian uh, was writing about how all women, uh, including virgins, young women, uh, unmarried women, should should wear head coverings in the church. So um, I don't know that that's a hard and fast rule to where we can say, um, we're only talking about married women um, covering their heads. And, and, and really, he's talking about the principle of headship. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of a pun, covering the head and headship. But I mean, even, in, even our languages reflect that confluence between the head of the body. I mean, your head is where your brain is, your eyes, your ears, your mouth. It's the, you know, it's the, it's the, it's the intelligence center of the body. Um, and the head, I mean, it's kind of a hierarchy of creation. Um, the, the human body has a hierarchy. Um, the angels have a hierarchy. Humanity has a hierarchy. Even the material world is hierarchical. And, and I think that that's really important that we understand that. And it's not only within the context of married life or family life, though it is. Um, it's not wrong to say we have that hierarchy 
of headship within the married within married life, but even single people live within the concept of headship. Um, you know, uh, every every you know, if you work for a living, you have a boss. If you uh, if you're a single uh, woman, um, you, if you're living at home with your folks, you know, as a young woman, you're especially if you're a minor, you're under the um, authority of your of your father or of your parents in, in a, in a godly order. So I think, um, I, I, I think they're, they're doing a little bit of eisegesis in forcing that translation. Um, and, uh, and, and, and in fact, I, from what I understand from, like I said, Pastor Koopman, there's been some research and, and, uh, what's, what scholars have kind of discovered is that, uh, the Greeks here, in Corinth, have a different custom than even the Romans. Um, it it may not be um, as much a, a as a sign of marriage as it would be in Rome. It seems like from the fact that he has to write to them uh, about this topic suggests they're not doing it. So the idea of head covering as a social construct, um, you might be able to say that in Rome, but but not here in Greece. And yet he's he's telling them to do it. I mean, he's advising them very strongly. It's not a law, but he's saying this is what you ought to be doing. And even though it's kind of foreign to their particular context and, and worldview, there is a, a theological reason behind it. And I don't think it's just marriage. I think it is the difference between male and female. And I think that difference between male and female is key. In one commentator that I read, he described the veil as being indicative of what it is to be a woman. Now, this is a cultural context from his point of view. So mm-hmm. he's saying the veil served to really affirm a woman's dignity as a woman. And if there is no male nor female within the Christian understanding uh, of value before God, right, everyone's equal, then the Corinthian Christian women were like, well, if, if there's no difference between me and men, then we're just going to dress and look like men, thus right. abandoning what would symbolize their value as women. So at least from his point of view, and I found this somewhat compelling, is that it's not as though the veil was supposed to dishonor the woman, but just the opposite. By abandoning what signified your uniqueness as a woman, your special dignity as a woman, and trying to make yourself equal to the men, well, your equality is in Christ. So you don't need to do that. And by doing so, you're abandoning what makes you special and valuable in the way God has designed you. Um, And I I think that's interesting, even in the context when we talk about headship. So uh, I think we're maybe jumping ahead a little too much. So back to the, the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. What what is headship? What does that look like? Is it as someone might argue? Well, being a head means that you're going to just be oppressive and and and, and rule with an iron fist and enslave others. That's what it means to be a head. Or yeah, as I've I, also heard, um, oh, head simply means source, and it implies no authority at all. It's sort of two <laughs> extremes, like the yeah. head of a river. I've literally heard. So, yeah, what do you yeah. think? Well, I think it's I think it's really this is the heart of the topic uh, because it says here um, 
Uh, every man is the, the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God. Uh, we see hierarchy and order even within the Trinity. You know, here's Jesus. He is God. And yet his head is God the Father. There is, um, you know, we have, uh, there's equality within the Trinity. I mean, Jesus is not a lesser being. He's not a, a different God, you know, uh, like the Arians would say. He is God in his fullness. The fullness of the Godhead dwells in Christ, as St. Paul said to the Colossians. And yet, Jesus submits the will of his Father. Um, Jesus places himself under the Father's headship. And this is what we do in love. And this is what we do by our nature. It is the nature of the Trinity to be hierarchical. It's the nature of heaven to be hierarchical. We see the angels, there's archangels and different layers of authority. Uh, we see it in all our human relationships in the, you know, the fourth commandment, God gives us parents and other authorities to maintain order. Um, the, the universe is orderly. Uh, the law, you know, the laws of gravity and the, in, and the speed of light. I mean, there is a hierarchy even in the created order. So that's really what we're getting at here. It's not a matter of uh, oppression. It's a matter of, you know, hierarchy works because that's how God designed everything to work. If you don't have hierarchy, you have chaos. And that's really what Satan is after. Uh, that's what you see in the Garden of Eden, right? Did God really say, um, you, you, you can be like God? So the, the appeal to Eve was to leapfrog over her husband's headship, and even leapfrog over God's headship to be like God, to pursue this equality. You could say that this is the very first instance of feminism or progressivism in the sense of egalitarianism. And it, it just violates the way that God creates everything. And then to say that authority or hierarchy or patriarchy is in and of itself oppressive is really um, to show great disrespect to God because even, even our Lord Jesus Christ himself submits to the Father. He does so out of love. He does so out of love for us and of, of obedience to the Father. And, and we, we have those sort of same, you know, even our marriages, according to St. Paul in the Ephesians, that this is a picture of, of the church and Christ. And, and this is just how the universe works. And if you try to buck that, you know, if you try to impose your own uh, way over and above God's way, you're, it's a, a rebellion and, and you're going to find yourself making things worse rather than better um, and making things chaotic rather than orderly. So I think that's really kind of what we're getting at here with the headship business. And, you know, St. Paul often talks about uh, the church being a, a body um, uh, e even in the marriage passage, you know, no man hates his own flesh. Um, the head doesn't oppress the arms and the legs. Uh, the head orders them. The head controls the movements and coordinates the movements for the good of the whole body. Um, but if you had, uh, it would be a perversion, certainly, where if, if someone's head were existing for the purpose of dest destroying the members, um, that's not what headship means. And it's certainly not headship when, you know, when God defines it in terms of the Trinity, in terms of how we relate to God, and in terms of his word uh, speaking to us about how men and women ought to relate to each other. 
God is a God of order, not disorder. In the in the beginning, when He creates us, you know, it says right He He created us in His image, male and female. He created us or them, right? So the being male and female, being ordered in this in this very way, which Paul is going to appeal to here in just a few verses, is fundamental to who we are. So it is no surprise, in my opinion, that in these last days, one of Satan's biggest tactics is to erase and erode the distinctions between man and woman. Brother, we're up against a break. We're going to give our listeners just a few minutes to digest everything that you've been talking about. And when we return, Pastor Bean and I will continue our discussion of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll see you on the other side. What's happening in Germany's Lutheran churches, where Iranian refugees are flooding through the doors? What new opportunities for sharing the Christian faith are arising in communist Vietnam, and how can my church play a part? Mission speakers, all LCMS pastors from the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, will come to your church, free of charge, to preach and lead Bible studies tying into this exciting work going on all around the world. To schedule your speaker, call LHF at 800-554-0723. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo, and with me today is the Reverend Larry Bean, pastor of Salem Lutheran Church in Gretna, Louisiana. So, Pastor, before the break, we were talking about headship, uh, and we only had gotten through the first three verses because there's just so much here. But I want to keep moving, if that's all right with you, with verse four, and it says, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife or woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it's the same as if her head were shaven. So there's some cultural aspects of her head being shaven, cultural aspects of what it means to uh, have your head covered or not covered. And we should even probably define prophesize here because I've actually heard this text as a proof text for women being able to preach in the church, even though Paul is very explicit about this elsewhere, and the rest of Scripture supports that. Um, it's as if uh, you know a woman has the right to uh, proclaim God's word in the church as a preacher, as long as her head's covered. So I'm not yeah. sure yeah. what we should do with this, but I'm I know you won't lead us astray. <laughs> well, I think the idea that we're talking about uh, praying and prophesying this is the this is the divine service. I mean, we're not talking about, um, you know, someone might say, well, men should never, ever wear a hat because it says uh, that it's shameful, you know, for a man uh, or, or and, and for women should always be covered, uh, head covered. But we're really, we're talking about divine service, praying and prophesying. And, and absolutely, the word prophesy, I think we have it in our mind um, that this that prophesy means to get a direct revelation from God and then you reveal it to people because we have the Old Testament prophets. But the Old Testament, pro- that was one aspect of prophesying. Um, prophets, prof- the prophets also were preachers of the word and, and, and proclaimers. But also um, there's sort of a, a private uh, prophesying, which we would call confessing, right? 
Um, some people are called to be public preachers, public prophets, but we're all called to confess. And so women do prophesy in the divine service because we are repeating scripture back and forth to each other. So the whole congregation is prophesying. The pastor's prophesying. It's not that he gets a direct revelation, but he's preaching the word. He is proclaiming God's word publicly. That's his vocation. The lay people's vocation, whether they're men or women, is to hear the preaching, but also to speak it back in an orderly way in the liturgy. So, you know, when we do the intro, it, for instance, we're doing a, we're singing a psalm together or when, uh, when, you know, when we do the Sanctus, we are, when we sing the Sanctus, we're, we are reciting Isaiah 6. And that is a form of prophesying because we are proclaiming the word of God within the confines of our vocation. So I think that's really why that's in here. Uh, the idea is that we're talking about uh, specific traditions and practices within worship, which is why this chapter goes on to deal with the Lord's Supper. And I think that's what that I think that's what we're getting at here. Yeah, agreed. And he continues to talk about issues within the context of worship in chapters twelve and thirteen and fourteen. That is the bulk of the rest of the letter is dealing with practices in worship when they received the Lord's uh, service to them through the sacraments. Yeah. And so in 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 head coverings, then uh, when it says <clears throat> for a wife. Uh, will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short, connects back to this idea of with her head uncovered, dis I'm sorry, uh, it's the same as if her head was shaven. So short hair, head shaven. Um, I've read a lot of different things about what this could describe. On the one hand, I've heard that, you know, this is just talking about trying to be as a man, to to remove from yourself any uh, semblance of what it means to be specifically a woman um, and I think that appeals to the struggles that we have today. On the other hand, there could be some connection to temple prostitution with the length of hair. You know, and I'm not 100% sure because there's so much out there. What have, what have you discovered? I think it's more universal than, than anything else. Um, you see this in, uh, if, if anyone saw the, the movie uh, Band of Brothers about the uh, airborne uh, uh, regiment um, when they were when they liberated France, there was a scene, and this this really happened in real life. Uh, French women who were collaborators with the Nazis, uh, they they had their heads shaved, and and it was uh, a punishment because it was a social stigma. Uh, women have their hair is their glory. They you know women in every culture, every in every culture, women use their hair as an adornment. Uh, they fuss over their hair. They braid it. They uh, style it. It's it's part of their glory and their beauty in a way that men don't. I mean, some men are kind of fussy about their hair. But uh, but as far as shaving the head, that's always used as humiliation. You know, like in a, in a concentration camp, they shave the women's heads. Um it's it's a humiliation and and it's interesting too because it is even to this day even with all the gender bending and, and maybe more so there's still that connection it was really funny I told you I was listening to this uh, podcast with uh, Pastor Koopman and he and we, my wife and I were in the car we were listening in the car we stopped at a stoplight and the car right next to me 
was a, a young woman driving and she had uh, her head wasn't quite shaved, but it was it was very, very short, very close cropped, you know, like maybe an eighth of an inch long. And then I, th- I thought, well, that's interesting, you know, because we're just we're just mm-hmm. discussing this. But then as she pulled away, the back of her car had a sticker on it of the um of the the sort of new rainbow flag with all the extra ornamentation on it so right. you know she was she was this was not just a style you know it wasn't that you know oh it's so annoying my hair's annoying and i don't want to shampoo it i mean this was a statement a cultural political theological statement and here we are 2000 years almost removed from uh from St. Paul's Day writing to the Corinthian church. And that is still a, an act of rebellion against being feminine. Um, yeah. We still see that. So I, I think it's more universal. Um, you know, and, and as we get later on, we, we get into this argument over hair length. I'll have more to say about that. But, um, but I, I, I do think there's more to it than just a cultural thing. I, I think this is pretty universal. Um, you know, of course, different types of hair, that different lengths, that's, a, you know, there's fashions come and go. But the idea of removing a woman's hair, that's sort of like, you know, that's taking something from her that is that that shows her femininity and it takes it away from her. This is, you know, women who get cancer. This is traumatic for a woman to lose her hair. This is a, you know, for a guy, it might not be as big a deal. You know, men go yeah, bald t- anyway when they get older and, uh, you know, <laughs> guys will, you know, guys will, you know, go get their head shaved or whatever because they're work- out working in the sun or whatever. it's no big deal. But it, very few women would see having a shaved head as a, an, something that's feminine. They usually do it as a rebellion against femininity. So this isn't to say that if you wanted a, you know, particular style that that was somehow sinful, just in general, the context is that. You know, people shave their head to make a statement. They shave their head in rebellion. And even when natural processes occur, for instance, when a woman begins to lose her hair, if that's her lot, it tends to be more traumatic for her than it would be for a man who actually men commonly lose their hair when they get older. And so you're saying that this idea of shaving a head as a punishment or losing your hair as a dis- as a feeling more dishonorable toward women than men it's kind of something we even see in nature. And that's what he says. He talks about, you know, we see this from nature later on. Yeah, absolutely. He makes kind of a, a natural law argument. He he draws a parallel between the way women see their head in terms of their hair versus men versus whether they should have their head covered or uncovered in the divine service. He draws a parallel there. And I think it's a, it's a very important to understand that because it's not, this isn't about style, and it's not, it's not even a law. Uh, he's not saying you must wear a head covering or it's a sin. What he's pointing out is there are underlying um, uh, intentions or confessions involved in the way we live out our lives. Um, it's, it's, not ju- it's not sinful for a woman to have short hair, but if, if a woman is you know, shaving her head and then putting a symbol of lesbianism on the back of her car. Well, you know, there, there's clearly a connection there between the rebellion against God's created order in terms of sexuality and hierarchy and patriarchy and all of that 
Uh, and the way he created us, male and female, he created us. You know, there's rebellion going on against that. And, and, that's, and, and, and I think we have to keep in mind, you know, sin is not per se in, in any particular style or action. It is the intention behind it. So, um, you know, just because you see a woman and her hair's really short, you shouldn't assume she's sinning. There's lots of reasons she may have very close cropped hair, but, uh, but, but it, it, the, on the other side of the coin, um, most, uh, most of the time, if people are in rebellion against the created order of male and female, you're going to know it by looking at them. Men will deliberately try to look more effeminate. Women will deliberately try to look more masculine because they are in rebellion. Uh, but it's, it, it, it doesn't work, you know, sort of in both ways, though. I mean, sometimes there are women who are just very muscular and big and, and you know, you can't assume that they're in some sort of rebellion. It just they have big bones, you know, I mean, and, and they, could, they could be as feminine as can be. But, you know, when you first look at them, you may not think that. So, of course, we want to avoid stereotyping people or, um, or making assumptions about people. But we clearly live in a culture that is in rebellion against having a masculinity and femininity and having it expressed. Uh, we're, we're in a culture in, in, in rebellion against that. Paul certainly has a way with words. In verse 6, he has this sort of circular argument toward pushing for having a woman cover her head. He says, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for her to cut her hair, her hair short or shave her head, then let her cover her head. It, I don't know why, and maybe it's not an exact parallel, but it reminds me of Paul speaking to those agitators in Galatians of the <laughs> circumcision party when he says, I wish those troublemakers would just go all the way themselves, you know, emasculate yeah. themselves. He's kind of saying if a woman won't cover her head, then she just should just go all the way and cut it off. But sure. then he appeals, hey, but you know, that's not right. So instead, cover her head. Now, for right. a man ought not to cover his head since he's the image and glory of God, but a woman is the glory of men. Sticking with the head covering for just a moment, what would it have looked like for a man to cover his head in that context? Right. He's, he's appealing to the fact that, you know, you don't see men wearing veils. I mean, I don't know of any culture where men wear veils. Moses veiled his face because it was shining with the glory of God. But, uh, you know, that's because people were scared <laughs> to look at his face. Mm -hmm. But it's not a... And not a cultural thing. You don't, see, you know, I don't know of any culture around the world where you have bride and groom, and the groom wears a veil and covers his head, and the bride does not. It's, it's, it's so. It's like we're hardwired for this. And I do want to approach this business about covering. I, again, I think the translation. This goes back to the old King James and probably further. Um, the word uh, akatakalupto is translated as uncovered. And I, I wonder if veiled, unveiled is a better translation. And here's why I think this. Um, akatakalupto, you hear the kalupto, apocalypse, that is based on that word. The apocalypse mm. is an unveiling, right, or a revealing. You take right. the veil off and you reveal something. When something is to be covered up, you veil it. It's not just that the head has to be covered. There's got to be something on top of it. The idea is that it's 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 not just on top. It's a it's an it's a veil. And what do we do with veils? You you veil stuff out of modesty. You it's think about Adam and Eve after after they knew the concept of nakedness. What did they do? They wore loincloths. They veiled 
the parts of their body that are the most sacred, uh, the parts of the body that are used in procreation, in, in you know, being fruitful and multiplying. That's what you cover in public. Okay, so you're covering something that is sacred. We put veils over the Holy Communion elements because it's, it's modesty, it's, it's sacred. Uh, and, and that gets to Moses covering the, his face because of the, the glory of God. Um, we, we cover, uh, well, in, in the Old Testament, the tabernacle was a tent. It was a covering that went over the Ark of the Covenant. You didn't just want that out there on display for everybody. It's sacred. It's holy. There's a, a sense of not flaunting that around. And so you, meant, you alluded to this earlier. When women are veiled, it's not, you know, it's not a thing of shame. It's really a profound respect and love and a, and, and a sense of, you know, a woman is holy. Uh, her body can bring forth new life. Uh, the body of a woman brought forth our Lord Jesus Christ in his incarnation. So that which is feminine is veiled, especially in the proximity of the holy in, in the divine service, uh, because of that very reason. And, and of course, the opposite would apply to men, too. I mean, if, if you know, uh, men are not women, so it's kind of the opposite. Uh, women wear hats into the church. That, that's been the case for centuries, hats or veils. But if a man wears a ball cap into the church, it, we would probably tell him not to do it or ask him to take it off, or at the very least, we would see it as improper. Um, it's the custom in the West, it's been the custom forever that when, you, when you're at table, men remove their hats. When you are inside, men remove their hats. Um, this, gets, this also gets to the, uh, the Quakers. Uh, this is why the, the, the Quaker Oats guy is wearing a hat, because the Quakers, all would, they would not doff their hat for the king. Because remember, they were egalitarians. They believed in equality. They did not believe in hierarchy. So the king taking your hat off, a man removing his hat in the presence of the king, a woman would leave her hat on, a man would remove his hat in the presence of the king to show respect, right? And the Quakers just said, we're not going to take our hat off for the king because we believe in equality. And, and, you know, and Quakers are to this very day, they're very progressive. They believe in equality, egalitarianism, um, in, in a good way and in a bad way. And, uh, and that, and, and, and that kind of, that kind of uh, uh, worship of equality is, has to do with how men and women present with their head. Um, I just learned this, in fact, uh, from Pastor Koopman, but in the 1960s, the National Organization for Women, um, they actually issued a statement calling for women to burn their head coverings. Um, if you belong, because back then, like you mentioned in the fifties, everybody wore, all women wore head coverings, regardless of denomination, Roman Catholics, Baptists, Lutherans, women would come to church either in a hat or they might wear a mantilla or a veil, or they might have a little doily on their head or something that was just universal among Christians. It had been for almost two millennia. And then in the sixties with the sexual revolution, um, that changed and it changed almost overnight and it changed almost universally to where head coverings are almost not found at all anymore in among Americans, for instance. So uh, even, even the National Organization for Women recognized that the head covering for a woman is a symbol of submission. And they found that repugnant 
because they oppose patriarchy, they oppose hierarchy, they are in favor of egalitarianism. So it's interesting that you see the same confession between the Quakers and the National Organization for Women and, you know, St. Paul, you know, preaching to the Corinthian church here about what that means. It shows how universal this all is. It's not just a, a cultural phenomenon for the Corinthian. I've heard that too. You know, well, this is the church in Corinth and it doesn't really apply to anybody else. You know, I, I don't know. I, that's right. not evident. The evidence uh, uh, certainly doesn't support that narrow interpretation. You know, it reminds me of uh, Moses telling the people when they were rebelling against him to say, you're not, you know, you're not angry with me or you're not rebelling against me. It's, it's against God. Yeah, absolutely. And when we see in this day and age people rebelling against the way things God has made them or trying to not be submissive to what God has designed, yeah, you're not getting over on men or man. You are rebelling against God and his good design. And when Paul appeals to this idea, he appeals in this text to that very thing, creation. But he says it in ways that I think while understood properly, are perfectly within reason of the way we understand how God wants us to treat one another. But I think according to American sensibilities and ears, they start to burn a little bit. When he says, for a man not ought to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man, it implies, implies that women are made not in the image of God. But we know they are from Genesis. And then he says, but he explains, for man was not made from woman, but woman from a man. And neither was man created for woman, but woman for a man. And this is why a wife or woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. And then he throws in there, just to make it a little bit more confusing, because of the angels. So <laughs> what is what's he getting at here? And how can we, as uh, faithful Christians who desire to live in accordance with the way that God has designed things, how can we testify rightly to this passage, you know, to people who are convinced by the American civil religion that, you know, there, there should be no distinction even between what a man is and what a woman is? Yes, it's, this, this is really good stuff. Um, absolutely, men and women are different. We are um, different in the way we think. We're different in the way that we've been designed, the different strengths that we bring to the marital union and to humanity. And, uh, and, and so this, 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 this image and glory kind of language, um, you know, since he is the image and glory of God and the woman is the glory of man, this, this shows you that it is hierarchical and the word patriarchy is a bad word today. You know, we're going to smash the patriarchy and all of that. Um, patriarchy just refers to the hierarchical design uh, for the for humanity, uh, the way God designed it to work within the family, within society, um, within all human relationships, it, it's you know it's equality is such a weasel word. I mean, uh, you know, a in the military, uh, a four star general and a private soldier are equals. They have they're equals under the law. They have equal rights. They're equal in dignity and humanity. And yet they have a different office. They have a different vocation. Um, one has more authority than the other. One has authority over the other uh, because you, you simply cannot function without some sort of hierarchy. So, of course, you can sin by thinking that your high rank makes you worth more than someone else. Uh, you can become tyrannical. You can become oppressive. 
And that's not the norm. That's not what God is talking about. In fact, Jesus showed us what it means to be a leader uh, by washing the feet, becoming a slave, and washing the feet of your subordinates. So it's we are to treat one another in love and in service for the good of all. And that's, you know, uh, it's kind of a noblesse oblige. If you hold rank, if you hold some sort of authority, you are to use it for the good, uh, not to be a bully about it. And it goes the other way, too. I mean, if you are a subordinate, you owe your loyalty to the person or institution above you because that's how God rules us, right? So, um, again, I think we're, the, the emphasis on the hierarchy is really important but there's a, there's a, a couple of instances of the word ought, and I think this is really helpful to understand that we're not talking, this is not a thou shalt or thou shalt not thing. Um, Paul is not creating an 11th commandment that, you, that a woman must cover her head in the divine service. If she doesn't, she is sinning. And if she, um, and if a man has a ball cap on his head, he is, he is sinning by definition. Now, they might be. If they are acting in rebellion, then yeah, you are. But a lot of times, I think people just don't know any different. I mean, guys will, you know, at a funeral, you have men will walk on into the church with a ball cap on because they go everywhere else and they're not used to being in churches. So it's not a blatant act of rebellion. And the same nowadays, you know, our, our grandmothers all had their heads covered in church. Um, our mothers probably didn't. And, and young women today... Uh, most don't. Although among young women, that's where you see the um, head covering coming back. And I hope we get a chance to talk about that a little bit. But St. Paul is telling the Corinthians, and by extension, all of us, he says that this is, this is not a law, but it's a best practice. You ought to do this. A man ought not cover his head. A woman ought to, right? And so this is the Bible, after all. It is God's word. And so just because it doesn't make it an absolute commandment doesn't mean we should ignore it. Um, I, I think there's a parallel to what our Lord does with um, in, in Matthew 6, right? Jesus says, when you uh, give alms, when you give to the needy, uh, in verse 2, in verse 5, he says, when you pray, and verse 16, he says, when you fast. But these are not laws. There's no law that says you must give alms, pray, or fast. It's, there's no thou shalt do this. And there's no, pro, there's no uh, explanation like, well, uh, you must give 10% or you must pray the Lord's Prayer every day or you must fast uh, during Lent on Fridays. Those are, those are ways you can do it, and we're free to come up with various ways. But Jesus assumes you are going to give alms, you are going to pray, and you are going to fast because that's just what Christians do. And I think that's what Paul's getting at here. It's not a law, but Christians do. Christians are mindful of headship. And women, Christian women, are mindful of, of, of headship, of how they portray themselves, of modesty before uh, God and before their husbands and before men in general because of this respect for God's hierarchy. And I think that's what we're getting at because of the angels. Mm-hmm. Um, because. I think that's what we're getting at, because who's in church? You know, we, we do this. We think, okay, I've got a church. I've got, you know, 50 people here, and let's, let's have a voters' assembly and decide wh- what kind of worship we want to do or what kind of, you know, how we want to do things. Well, who's not voting there? Um, 
G.K. Chesterton spoke of tradition as the democracy of the dead. You know, the dead get to vote in tradition. But when you, you know, if you have a voters assembly and it's like, okay, uh, all in favor of contemporary worship, uh, say aye, and all in favor of traditional worship, say nay or whatever, and you put it to a vote of the people that are there, you're ignoring that we are a great cloud of witnesses of those who've gone before us. And what do we say right before the preface? And so with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven. And so I think the idea is not like, um, well, I don't feel like wearing the veil because for whatever reason it's too hot or, you know, I'll look funny or whatever. Uh, I, I think the idea is that uh, women should be mindful that the church includes, you know, includes their beloved grandmothers who did wear head coverings for very good theological reasons. And it does include the angels. Um, the angels uh, uh, um, the angels are part of our church, and they are um, they are disembodied spirits. They don't have bodies, and so maybe uh, this is a little bit of speculation on my part. Maybe they are more affected by bodily displays of immodesty um, for that reason. Uh, but at any rate, um, you know. Paul does mention the angels here, so this isn't just simply a matter of a cultural convention. Oh, well, we wear a wedding ring, and uh, in, the, in the Bible, the women covered their heads, and it just doesn't really matter. You know, maybe our great-granddaughters won't even wear wedding rings anymore. Maybe they'll indicate that they're married by painting their toenails or something. You know, it's, it's, it's not that. There is something more going on here than uh, a, a nice cultural custom. I mean, it has gone on for so long. It only stopped when feminism began to agitate against the head coverings. That's when we all stopped. When I say we, I mean people in general, when we began to separate ourselves from that tradition and women specifically got rid of their uh, head coverings and hats and veils, mantillas, whatever, and began going into worship with heads uncovered. And, and again, I'm not saying that uh, if a lady goes to church at divine service and she has her head uncovered, she's sinning. I'm not saying that at all. But it is a laudable custom that does confess something eternal, something of great value. And I don't think we should be so quick to dismiss it. I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Larry Bean, who's pastor of Salem Lutheran Church in Gretna, Louisiana, chaplain in the U.S. Air Force Auxiliary, the Civil Air Patrol, teacher and chaplain at Wittenberg Academy. He's also a contributor and on the editorial board over at Gottesdienst. Check it out. Uh, thank you, Pastor, for being on the show. Well, thank you, Pastor Boo. Thank you for what you do. This is a valuable service to the church, and I'm again, I'm honored to be here. Thank you so much. Well, I can't wait to have you back on again. And thank you too, listener, for tuning in to Thy Strong Word. I've been your host, Pastor Phil Boo. Tune in tomorrow as we move toward the Lord's Supper and what Paul has to talk about that. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in Thy Strong Word. Amen.